Uh, well, welcome today. Uh, happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers. Uh, may God bless you for uh, just doing such a, an important and a brilliant uh, job in your world. Uh, if you're new today, welcome to you. My name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad that you're joining us. We are in this series called Shadows in which we've been talking about all these questions and, and some of the doubts that people struggle with when it comes to faith in Jesus. And along the way, we've been inviting you to submit your questions. And so if you still have questions, if you're like, yeah, but what about this? Or we didn't talk about that. Or, or you said this, but I didn't understand it or didn't agree with it or whatever it is. If you want, fire those in because we're going we're gonna to start answering those questions pretty quick. So you can send it here to the QR code that's on the screen. Uh, you can uh, drop it by in the lobby after the service or on the website as well. Well, today we're coming to the second last of our topics that we're looking at, and it is the, the topic of science and faith. And we really want to talk about two questions. The first one is this, are science and faith in conflict? Don't science and faith contradict one another in all kinds of places? And the second question is this, it, surely... Surely science is slowly but, but effectively disproving the existence of God. I mean, isn't it pretty much impossible to be an intelligent scientific thinker these days and still hold to religious beliefs? So those are the two questions. So let's, let's start with the first question. Are faith and science in conflict? Well, not according to the Bible, they're not. According to the Bible, faith and science aren't in conflict at all. In fact, they are complementary. They are different sides of the same coin. Both reveal who God is, but in different ways. The Bible reveals to us who God is through history and through the person and life of Jesus Christ. And, and science reveals God to us through nature and the physical world around us that God created. The Apostle Paul talks about this very thing in a letter that he wrote to a group of Christians in the city of Rome. He writes this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What the Apostle Paul writes is, is really that it is in creation, in, in the cosmos, in, in nature, that as we dig deeper and deeper into it, we see God in the midst of it. We see him revealing himself to us. And that, of course, we do through science. Science complements what the Bible tells us about God because ultimately God is behind it all. Ultimately, God is the author of the universe and of this world that we live in. And the Bible very famously says that in the very opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if he's the creator, if he's the author of all that there is and, and everything that we see, then as we study it and as we learn about it, science won't conflict with faith, but rather complement it. In fact, this very idea was the premise of modern science. Modern science can be traced back to two Franciscan monks who lived in the 1200s. Uh, one guy's name was Roger Bacon, the other guy William of Ockham, and they established the foundations of the, the, the scientific method, the empirical method, based upon the idea that if God created it all, if he's the designer of it all, 
then we should be able to find laws and patterns and categories and all these things in the natural world that point to the hands of a creator. It's the foundation of science. Or certainly of, of the beginning of science. And of course, this, this mindset led to a long and illustrious line of scientists who had no conflict whatsoever between a deep and abiding faith in God and a very vigorous science in their, in their world. So for example, Johannes Kepler, the 16th century astronomer who established the laws of planetary motion, writes this. The chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony imposed on it by God in which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. This is the goal, to see how God put it all together. And you can describe it, he said, in the language of math. Galileo, another astronomer who famously ran afoul of the church by showing that the, the, the earth rotates around the sun and that not the other way around, he writes this. The laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. See, Galileo was a firm believer in both God and the Bible and was so until the very day uh, of his death. Uh, Albert Einstein, uh, obviously one of the greatest scientists in, in history, uh, in his study, he had pictures of three of his scientific heroes. The first picture that he had in his study was of Isaac Newton, who lived in the 1600s. Of course, he, he discovered or established or made, obviously, he, he found the, the laws of, of motion and gravity. But you know, Isaac Newton, Isaac Newton was a deep believer in God. In fact, he wrote more about theology than he did about physics. The next picture that, that Albert Einstein had in his office was of Michael Faraday, who lived in the 1700s. And he was best known for his work with electromagnetism. And, uh, and uh, he was considered one of the greatest experimental scientists of all of history. And so there's all kinds of uh, uh, things that there are scientific terms named after him. The Faraday constant, the Faraday effect, the Faraday cage, the Faraday waves. And he was a deeply passionate Christian who was very interested in the relationship between science and faith. And then the third picture that Einstein had in his study was that of a Scottish man named uh, James Clerk Maxwell, who lived in the 1800s. And he was credited with the second great unification of physics, bringing together electricity, magnetism, and light. And he also was a passionate Christian, an elder in his, in his church. There are all kinds of other great scientists who also had this deep, great, abiding faith in God and in the Bible and no, saw no conflict whatsoever between faith and science. The science historian Peter Harrison writes this. Far from hindering the rise of modern science, faith in God was one of the motors that drove it. And Colin Russell, another highly regarded historian of science, writes this. The common belief that the actual relations between religion and science over the last few centuries have been marked by deep and enduring hostility is not historically accurate, but actually a caricature so grotesque that what needs to be explained is how it could possibly have achieved any degree of respectability. There is no conflict between faith and science. And yet there remains in our, in our world this, this sense that yes, there is. 
I mean, so for instance, people say, well, okay, what about miracles? I mean, the Bible talks about miracles, but hasn't science disproved miracles? Well, no, actually, it hasn't. The, the belief that there can be no such things as miracles is just that. It, it's a belief based upon a faith assumption. The, the idea that, or the belief that there can be no miracles is based upon the faith assumption that we live in a closed system. In other words, that, that everything in the universe is all that there is. Let, let me explain it this way. Uh, let's suppose I got a giant cardboard box, a massive cardboard box for my rabbits, to put my rabbits in there. Now, I had rabbits, uh, but they died. And then I got another rabbit and it died, so, so I don't get rabbits anymore. But suppose that I did. And I got this big, and in this big cardboard box, I put in everything that a rabbit needed to live. Water, lettuce, or grass, or whatever they eat, and, and, uh, and, uh, and a place for them to sleep, and, and uh, you know, a place for them to poop, because rabbits poop a lot, and, and another rabbit, because rabbits multiply like rabbits. I mean, everything that they needed. And then I closed the lid of the box and never touched it again, and they just lived forever in that box happily ever after. I mean, that would be a closed system. No outside interference in what happens for the rabbits. But then let's suppose that, that instead of that, I actually put a lid on that box. And, and so one day when the rabbits were sleeping, I reached in and I put a giant orange crunchy carrot there and then went away and, and, and stepped back again. In the morning, when one of those rabbits got up and say, a carrot fell from the sky. He'd say to his other rabbit friend, hey, did you, did you put it there? He's like, no. He'd be like, it's a miracle. There must be a human out there that put the carrot here. Now that's the opposite of a closed system. That's an open system. That says there is a power greater than what we know here that can impact and affect the, the world that we live in. Now, the first rabbit held not a scientific belief, but a faith-based belief that there was just a closed system. He'd say, well, no. No, it can't be. There, there's no such thing as a human. I never saw an arm come in here. And I've never seen a human. And I can't scientifically prove that a human exists. So clearly, even though this carrot appeared, it must be for some other reason. See, that's not a scientific statement. That's a statement of faith. Whether you believe in, in miracles or whether you don't believe in miracles, both are based on faith, not science. See, the uh, Russian um, novelist Fodor Dostoevsky describes a person who thinks that they're scientific but actually have faith when it comes to this. He says, he is the type of man who will always find himself in himself the strength and the ability not to believe in miracles. And if a miracle stands before him as an irrefutable fact, he will sooner doubt his own senses than admit that fact. And if he does admit it, he will admit it as a fact of nature that was previously unknown to him. You see, even when he sees the miracle, he's like, no, because, because it's about faith, not science. The question of miracles is that very thing? See, science can neither prove that God exists nor prove that he doesn't exist. And science can't prove that we live in a closed system any more than it can prove that we live in an open system. 
because the realm of science is simply, by its very definition, limited to studying the natural world, that which can be seen and tasted and touched. So anything that's outside of that realm is simply outside the realm of science. For a scientist to claim that there's no such thing as miracles because it can't scientifically prove that miracles happen is like a drunk man who, who argues that there's no other place to look for his, key, his lost keys than under the streetlight because that's the only place that he can see. It simply doesn't work that way. Miracles, of course, are rare by definition. If miracles happened all the time, they wouldn't be miracles. They'd just be everyday life. But that doesn't mean that they can't or don't happen. That's a question of faith, no matter your position, not of science, because they fall outside the realm of scientific research. Okay, so you say, okay, okay, I, I get that, but, but what, about, what about Galileo? I mean, Galileo came up with the science and the church said, no, no, we oppose what he said. They persecuted him for it. Doesn't that show that faith and science are in conflict? Well, nope. No, that doesn't either. That shows that the church at that time made a mistake by mixing up what the Bible tells us with what science tells us. Galileo, as I already pointed out, was a deeply committed Christian who believed fully in the Bible. In fact, he argued powerfully that his science didn't undermine what the Bible said at all. In fact, the idea that the sun circled the earth and not the other way around is not actually from the Bible it's a Greek idea. It's actually from Aristotle who proposed this. And in fact, the whole scientific community in the day believed it, except for Galileo. And some people had wrongly used a couple of verses from the Bible out of context to say this very thing. So what Galileo did when he said that the, the, that the earth circled the sun and not the other way around is he stirred up a hornet's nest, nest in the in the scientific community who began to apply pressure on the Pope to stop him from what he was doing. Now, it didn't help that, that Galileo, who was such a smart guy, also made fun of the Pope publicly, which shows that he's smart in some areas, but not so smart in others. But the fact of the matter is, when you actually get to know the story of what went on, the question was not one of conflict between faith and science, but one of political pressure that was taking place. But the church, nevertheless, should have never used the Bible to do battle in the area of science. I mean, 1,100 years earlier, the great church father Augustine had warned about the danger of trying to use the Bible as a science book. Listen to what he wrote. It is a disgraceful and dangerous thing to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture talking nonsense about these topics. For instance, science. If unbelievers find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about the Bible, how are they going to believe the Bible in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? See, this is the mistake that the church made in Galileo's time. They presumed that the Bible supported a scientific position that it did not. And in the process, they did damage to the message of the gospel that still ripples out today, hundreds of years later. 
And that should be a warning for us. I mean, today there is huge debate among Christians about the question of evolution and how it relates to what the Bible teaches us about creation. And the fact of the matter is that on both sides of that debate and everywhere in between, there are Christians who hold to a very high view of the scriptures, who believe that every word of the Bible is the inspired word of God, who hold very different positions on this question. But wherever they stand, one thing is clear. And that's this, that that the opening chapters of Genesis are not primarily concerned with science. If they were, the opening chapters of Genesis would would talk in scientific language about, about, you know, uh, things like uh, formulas and scientific categories and descriptions of technical details. But they're not. And that lack of scientific detail is not an oversight. And now listen, listen carefully, please, please, before you send me your emails, I'm not saying that the Genesis doesn't have a lot to say about how this world was created, but, but it has a much more important message than how. Its primary message is who, who created this world? And who are we in light of who created this world? And, and, and what is life about? And, and how do we relate to God? And how do we relate to each other? Because, you see, those are the questions that science can't answer. The Nobel laureate Sir Peter Medawar, in his book Advice to a Young Scientist, writes this. There is no quicker way for a scientist to bring discredit upon himself and upon his profession then roundly to declare that science knows or soon will know the answer to all questions worth asking. The existence of a limit to science is, however, made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions that have to do with first and last things. Questions such as, how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? See, just as Christians run into problems and dangers and pitfalls when they try to use the Bible as a primarily a science textbook, scientists run into the same pitfall if they try to use science to say, talk about the important things of life that science doesn't have the answers to. And that's, that's the case for science. It has limits. My, my daughter is a, a brilliant baker. She bakes all the time. It's a joy for my heart. I'm working to make sure it's not too joyful for my stomach. Uh, but, but, but imagine that one day I come home and she has baked a beautiful three-layer chocolate cake with chocolate mousse on the inside and chocolate icing on the outside and, and, and chocolate chunks everywhere in between. I mean, it is a, it is a piece of art. Now, now imagine that I brought in a bunch of scientists and said, I want you to tell me about this cake. Oh, they could tell me all kinds of things. The biochemist would be able to tell me about the proteins and the fats in there and how they interact. He could write a a 20-page report for me to read about that cake. And the chemist would come in and and tell me about the compounds and how the interaction between them makes certain flavors a certain way that they are. And and he could write a a 30-page report for me to understand those details. And the physicist would be able to come and study how a three-layer cake could have mousse on the inside and not fall flat. And, and, and the mathematician would be able to write, uh, you know, all these equations, A and B and X and Y, and to show how the subatomic particles in that cake interact with one another. It would be brilliant. 
I could read about it for months afterwards from the reports that they would send to me about that cake. But the one thing that they could not tell me, no matter how deep they went, how much they studied was this. Why did she make the cake? I mean, what was the purpose of it? I mean, did she make it because she just loves her dad and he, she knows that he loves chocolate cake? Did she make it for a school assignment? Did she make it because she's selling it at a bake sale? Did she make it because it's someone's birthday? They will never, ever, ever be able to figure that out unless she tells them. And you know, the same thing is true with, with all of life. The, the meaning of life, why we're here, what it's all about. Those are questions that science will never be able to answer. Those are things that can only be known if God reveals them to us. And that's what the Bible is about. And science complements that, but it can't possibly compete with that, even though it tries. I mean, just because a scientist makes some sort of statement about life doesn't mean that just because they're a scientist, it's true. Carl Sagan, famous, famous American astronomer and cosmologist, had this TV program back in the day that he started with this famous line, the cosmos, the universe, is all that is or ever was or ever will be. He said it as a scientist. But that's just a statement of faith. That's not true, or at least it can't be proven. That's a statement of faith. But because he said it with a scientist, a voice, everyone says, oh, a scientist said it must be true. It's not. Bertrand Russell, mathematician and philosopher, wrote this. Whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. Sounds so scientific, except for in that very statement. He says, well, therefore, the history department at his university doesn't matter anymore. The literature department doesn't matter. The art department doesn't matter. There's no truth anywhere except for in his department in science. I mean, his very statement is not even scientific. It's a statement of faith. Dr. Peter Atkins, professor of chemistry at Oxford uh, University, writes this. There is no reason to suppose that science cannot deal with every aspect of existence. Except as we just pointed out, not even the most childlike questions about why am I here, mommy and daddy, what's this life about, can be answered by the greatest scientists in the world. <laughs> the Nobel Prize winning uh, laureate uh, physicist uh, Richard Feynman said that outside of his or her field, the scientist is just as dumb as the next guy. And Stephen Gold, the Harvard paleontologist and committed atheist, writes this, to say it for my colleagues and for the umpteenth million time. Science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issues of God's possible superintendence of nature. Whether affirmed, we neither affirm nor deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. So, are science and faith in conflict? No, not at all. They complement one another. They both reveal who God is as the creator and sustainer of the universe, only in very different ways. Okay, that's the first question. The second question is this. Okay, but, but isn't science slowly and surely disproving the so-called existence of God? I mean, isn't everything that we attribute to God actually being able to be explained by science? Isn't it kind of awkward Kind of embarrassing to, to, to think that you can think scientifically and intellectually in this world and still hold to religious beliefs. 
Well, Ken, the answer is no, not at all. In fact, the more we learn in science, the more it points toward God and not away from him. It's fascinating. Take the Big Bang Theory, for instance. The Big Bang Theory is the theory, of course, that this universe had a beginning from some sort of cataclysmic event and that it's exploded outwards and continues to, to rapidly expand. Now, that idea, that's a relatively new idea in science. That, that idea, interestingly enough, was first put forth by a Belgian Roman Catholic priest named Georges Lemaitre in the early part of the 1900s, so not long ago. And when he first put out this idea that the universe began with a big bang, he was roundly derided by the scientific community. In fact, another scientist, a guy named Fred Hall, thought it was a ridiculous idea. And he was doing a radio interview one day, and he said, this idea is so ridiculous. It's like, it's like describing a, you know, at a party, a party girl pops out of a cake, and there's this big bang. And he was making fun of it. And when he said big bang, it stuck. He who derided it was the one who gave the name to this theory. Now, why did he dislike this theory so much? Because before that time, through most of history before then, the scientists believed that the, the universe was in what was called a steady state. In other words, it had always existed. It was never a beginning to the universe. But now scientists have shown that there is a beginning to the universe. And that's a problem. I mean, what, what, where did that beginning come from? Who started it all? And it turns out that the science is showing that there should be a God there who begins it all. NASA scientist Robert Jathrow writes this. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, He's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. The more we learn about science, the more it points toward God, not away from him. Take another example, the example of the fine-tuning of the universe. Scientists have come to discover that the universe is, uh, or the, the, the fact that there is life in the universe is only because there's about 15 what they call constants that are so finely tuned that if any single one of them was out by just the tiniest amount, the universe would cease to exist. I mean, there would be no, no stars, no life, no planets, no chemicals, nothing. But, but, but the, but the fine-tuning is so incredibly fine. Take, for instance, gravity. Gravity is one of those 15. Gravity, the, 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 the gravity in the universe is so fine-tuned that, that it is within one to 10 of the 60th that it can change and not destroy the universe. If, it's, if it moves, I mean, think about that. One to 10 of the 60th, that's one with 60 zeros behind it. If it moves just one, one little number this way, then, then the entire universe would expand so rapidly that it would thin out and disappear. And if it just moved one little bit this way, it would collapse in upon itself. Either way, life would cease to exist. And that's just one, just one of these 15 uh, traits or constants that cause the universe to hold together. The life is possible. It, the, the likelihood of that happening by accident is so infinitesimally small 
that makes one to 10 to the 60 seem like a tiny number. In other words, it is literally impossible that that, that happened by accident. Which points to a creator, to a God that's outside of this whole thing that had put it in place. Now, the problem is sometimes because scientists hold a faith position instead of a science position, they don't want to follow the science. And so they've developed this new idea, some have, of the multiverse. In other words, there is not just one universe. There is multitude of universes, all kinds of universes out there. And because there's so many that are so large, just like ours, that eventually the, 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 the likelihood of something like our planet happening, our universe happening, just happens. The problem with that idea is that it's simply bad science. There is no such thing as the multiverse. Uh, uh, Sir Roger uh, Penrose, agnostic mathematician and physicist and sometimes research partner with uh, Stephen Hawking, wrote a book called Faith, Fantasy and Fashion, The New Physics of the Universe, where he points out that the idea of the multiverse is simply bad science. In fact, there is no science to back it up at all. There's, it cannot be detected, de Sorry, cannot be detected, cannot be observed, cannot be measured, cannot be mathematically proved. The, the idea of the multiverse only appeared. It only became a topic of discussion when it became clear that the fine-tuning of the universe pointed to an intelligent designer behind it all. Before that, no one had even broached the idea. It points to the creator God. And then, of course, there is the DNA, which is in every cell in your body, made up of four simple uh, chemical sort of letters. It, the DNA in your, uh, a small part in the cell of everyone, every cell of your body, of the millions of cells, is three billion letters long. Three billion letters long that, that dictates everything about who your physical life is or who you are. That thing is three billion letters long. Think about that. Imagine me taking a thousand letters, printing them out on paper, cutting them into little pieces, throwing them up in the air and watching them all come down and become a McDonald's menu. It would be perfect, wouldn't it? Might be a better menu than what they got. I don't know. But, but the fact of the matter is, no one says it's possible. Everyone knows even the McDonald's menu with a thousand letters on it is put together by a, a, an intelligent mind. So a three billion long letter, three billion long word, a three billion letter word in every single cell, that speaks to an intelligent mind. See, the science, the more we go, the deeper we go, the more it points towards God. You know, I, I know that I may look like an athlete, of course not. Being uh, tall and skinny like a stick doesn't make it a, for necessarily a great athlete. But, but I try. I, 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 I tried playing basketball. Uh, but what I found in basketball is that when I got the ball, some big guy would just come and take it out of my hands. And I spent most of my time chasing him down the court saying, hey, I want that back. Uh, and so I didn't play a lot of basketball. Instead, I got into a sport where there was a net between me and the opponents because that worked better for me. So I got into volleyball and, and I love volleyball and I played volleyball an awful lot and I learned all about it. And, and, and that means that today when I watch basketball, I haven't got a clue what's going on. 
I mean, when I watch basketball today, it's a bunch of big guys with beards running in circles and total chaos and pandemonium and one here and one pops up there and I don't know and, and they get the ball and they shoot it and they get a basket. But when I watch volleyball, oh man, I can see the play setting up and, and, I, and, I, and I know the philosophy behind why they're doing what they're doing and, and I know that, that when that guy goes up to spike that ball, I know how hard it is and, and what a beautiful thing it is when he just hammers it down there and if someone digs it up, Oh man, that, that is just a thing of utter beauty. Now, why do I know that? Why, why does it move me like basketball doesn't? Because I've gone deep, because I've understood what it's about. See, the deeper you go in the sciences, the more you study there, the more you say, ah, this is a beautiful thing. I mean, it points towards God. Roger Bacon, remember he was the guy, the, one of the, the Franciscan monks who started the scientific revolution back in the 1200s, he writes this. It is true that a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth man's mind to religion. A little bit of science, people say, well, yeah, probably there isn't a God. But when you go deeper, when you really begin to study it, it leads you to place that it's got to be a God. And in fact, that's the case for all kinds of world-class scientists. Francis Collins, who led the Human Genome Project, who, who mapped out the three billion letters of the DNA and now directs the National Institute of Health, was not a Christian when he got into science, but today is very, very boldly a, a follower of God. And there are Christians at the highest levels of all kinds of science. I mean, just take one Ivy League school, just, just one MIT in Massachusetts uh, or in Cambridge, Massachusetts. If you stopped most of the students in the corridors and said, are there Christians here? They'd be uh, Professors, they'd be like, I don't think so. But there's all kinds. If you look deeper, I mean, Ian Hutchinson, professor of nuclear science, Daniel Hastings, professor of aeronautics and astronautics, Jing Kong, professor of electrical engineer, none of whom were Christians before they got into the sciences, before they, before they started their studies. Rosalind Pickard, artificial intelligence expert who invented the field of effective computing, became a Christian when she was a teenager. Troy Van Vohes, chemistry professor who came to faith in grad school in Berkeley, California. Linda Griffith, biological and mechanical engineering professor who became a Christian when she was an already established scientist. Dick Yu, professor of mechanical and ocean engineering. Chris Love, chemical engineering. Doug Laffenberger, professor of biological engineering, chemical engineering, and biology. Because, I mean, why not have three or four PhDs instead of one, right? Susan Hockfield, neuroscientist and former and first female president of MIT, all deeply devoted followers of Jesus at just one of the Ivy League schools in the United States and many more at that same school. Between 1901 and 2000, over 60% of Nobel Prize winners were Christians. Not just the Nobel Peace Prize, but in literature and in, in economics and in mathematics and in physics and in chemistry and in all the categories, Christians over and over and over again. And the statistics show that the young cohort of new scientists are getting progressively more religious, not less. See, science doesn't point away from God. It points to God. 
And of course, you can be a deeply intellectual, scientific thinker and hold very strong belief in God. All kinds of brilliant scientists do it. King David, who wasn't a scientist, but was a poet, he must have spent hours as a shepherd boy sitting out in the fields contemplating the, the stars in the sky and the beauty of the universe. And, and, and he writes this in Psalm 19. Here's what he writes. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Man, he just says it like no one else. The natural world, the cosmos, the universe declares the glory of God. Not in words, but as we study it and as we learn more about it and as we engage in it deeper and deeper, it just displays the splendor and the majesty and the beauty of a beautiful, brilliant, good designer. And the words of the scriptures of the Bible also reveals to us through history and through Jesus, a God who loves us so deeply that he walks with us through our daily lives and that he sent his own son so that we could have a personal relationship with this very God who created such a vast and beautiful universe. Science and faith, not in conflict in any way, rather same, different sides of the same coin that reveal to us the beauty and the goodness of God. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's pray. Well, God, uh, you really are a remarkable God. You really are a marvelous God. And God, we read about you all the time in your word and we, we study you and we, we see you at work in all kinds of places. But God, in, you, in your creation, in, in this universe, God, you just displayed your glory in so many ways, in so many places. God, thank you. Thank you that as we learn more, as we tap the, the potential that you put in this, in this world, Father, that even as we use it to, to flourish in this life, God, that it points back to you. And so, Father, I pray for all who are in the sciences, all who are studying deeply. God, would you just continue to open their eyes? Would they just see the glory and the beauty of who you are as they learn and as they study and as they grow? And God, may you receive the glory in our lives. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I will thank you for coming and joining us today. I want to send you with these words from the prophet Isaiah. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. We serve such a great and a beautiful God. Nothing is too hard for him. May you walk in the grace and the peace of God as you go this week. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.